Hi, all, and welcome to this episode of 131 and Counting. I am really excited to share with you a guest today who I met in an event in D.C. and was so impressed by. It's Elisa Cardinal. She ran for election to the U.S. House to represent Texas' 2nd Congressional District. And when I first met her at this event, I could tell how passionate she was about um, all of the different issues she cares about. And I just really want to get her on, on this podcast to connect um, with our guests and hear more about her experience. So I am going to just get started and let her uh, say hello and then also ask the first question of her. Um, so I would love to hear a little bit about you, Elisa, and why you decided to run for the House seat. Thank you, Grace. Thank you for having me here. And I am thrilled to get to talk about the experience. Um, so service is in my DNA. I grew up as an army brat. I was born on an army base in West Germany. So I grew up in that environment. And then 9-11 happened when I was in high school. So I continued in my dad's footsteps. Uh, although I joined the Navy out of college, uh, they paid for school through the ROTC program. Mm. And so I was active duty in the Navy from 2007 until 2012. Following that, um, I was a high school math and science teacher. I went back to school uh, and continued serving the Navy in the reserves. And so I did that until 2018. When I couldn't serve in the reserves anymore because of some health issues that um, were service connected um, from my time in the military and my deployment, um, unfortunately, mm -hmm. that meant that I was, I was done in 2018. So I had to look for another way to keep serving. That year, there were so many great women veterans running for office across the country. Um, MJ Heger, Elaine Luria, Chrissy Houlihan, Mikey Sherrill, and all of these role models I was looking up to. And I said, you know, they're women veterans. So am I. Um, maybe one day. But I definitely didn't think it would be so soon. Uh, so that November, sitting there watching election results uh, on the couch, and Dan Crenshaw won my district, which... Uh, is entirely at that point in Harris County. It's been redistricted since. Uh, so this is home to Houston and a very blue area of Texas. But he won this district, playing up his veteran status, avoiding talking about policy. And a week later, he was on SNL with Pete Davidson and you know became famous for his, his disability. Um, mm -hmm. And so I knew that what it was gonna take was a woman veteran who was also a disabled veteran in order to level the playing field and that I needed to throw my hat into the ring. Mm. Wow. Well, that is a great, just knock it out of the park first answer. And and, and thank <laughs> you for sharing about um, your, your service throughout the years. And I think a lot of people relate to, you know, looking for different ways to serve. And I think, you know, one thing that a lot of different women's, um, you know, political groups do, um, but of course, you know, 131 and counting wants to do as well as, you know, just encouraging people to run. And I think as much as you see that all over social media, you see it everywhere, um, run, run, run. It's still like, it's an incredible leap of faith, you know? So, uh, I mean, I would, my vote of confidence of just impressive, just throwing your hat in the ring. I just think that takes a lot of bravery and we need more women to do that. Right? And um, more people that really care and really want to genuinely serve. Uh, you touched on this a little, but I, I do want to give uh, you a chance to just expand upon it a little, if you'd like. Um, 
you know, how did that background of being a veteran really affect your activism? I mean, and maybe here, if you're open to it, you could go into some of the different policies you're interested in. I, I thought it was interesting. You said Crenshaw kind of shied away from policy. Um, and, and, and so I'd just love to give you an opportunity here to talk about how has being a veteran affected your activism and, and what were some of those policies that you really wanted to push forward when you were doing this run? Definitely. So as a leader in the military, um, as well as being a teacher and a mom, uh, I knew that taking care of people was the most important thing. And that when mm -hmm. we could make that policy driven, uh, that was the way to do that without discrimination and to be more equal and equitable across the board for that. Um, so that informed uh, pretty much all of my policy stances. Um, it did mean that the national security background that I had from my time in the military kind of drove the decision to run for the first time at the federal level, mm. um, which most people, and we'll get into that a little later, I think, uh, I wouldn't recommend it for a first campaign. Um, <laughs> but I think what I saw in the military um, that I would have loved to bring outside of the military, I think one of the first things um, and one of my core issues was healthcare. And so my stance on having universal health care for everyone um, was based on my experience of having TRICARE uh, on active duty and then also using the VA as a veteran. Um, and I never got bad care. Sometimes I'd have to advocate for myself as in any medical system. And uh, sometimes a specialist would have a little bit of wait time. But I knew that at the end of the day, I was never going to skip getting taken care of because of cost reasons. And I think that was very important. And I wanted everyone to have that opportunity. Um, making sure that we had safe schools and um, you know, it was important to me as a teacher, but I also knew from my time in the military that if you have folks who are working, whether it's as a teacher, whether it's, you know, that mom who's in a corner office, but if they're worried about their kid at school because of school shootings, um, I think mm. that we, we definitely have to take that, um, you know, take that onus off of uh, the individual. And I think we need to societally uh, deal with some regulations. And that was kind of a big deal for me. Um, and I, that was from my, my days as a teacher and being a mom. Uh, but again, that was more for the taking care of people, right? Yeah. Um, so that if folks are taken care of, they're going to be able to go about, about their days um, and their lives and be able to contribute to the best of their ability. Yeah, that's well said. That is well said. I, I really, I, you know, one thing um, about hosting and talking to people is I can always tell, you know, a sentence that really hits, you know, it's like, even when you're the mom in the corner office, you know, thinking about your kid, you're still thinking about your kid um, and the danger they might be in, like literally going to school. I mean, it's, it's just so powerful to think about. And I, I think a lot about that, that also kind of gets involved with women throwing their, their hats in the ring that, you know, as much as we can have partners that manage the family as well, like there's just this I am not a mom yet, so I shouldn't speak on it. But I, I thought that 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 comment was really powerful. Um, you did also another little comment you made was uh, maybe you wouldn't have run for a congressional seat on your first go on it. So let's jump into this. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the campaign. I also think a bunch of people that listen to this podcast are people that live in D.C. and have thought about running at some point in their life. And I'm also one of those people that has always been like, maybe. So I would love to get this first person perspective. Tell us about this campaign and what it was like and why maybe you would have maybe started somewhere else. I'm interested about that, too. 
Sure. So let me let me take the first part of that about the campaign. Okay. <laughs> uh, it was definitely it was definitely a learning curve. Um, so I actually started out as a political newcomer um, because as a naval officer, a high school teacher, I didn't really talk about politics very much publicly before I decided to run. Um, I didn't even vote in primary elections because in both of those roles, I had to be very nonpartisan. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did have to build my political network from scratch, my knowledge of campaigns. And, you know, I, I could watch TV, but those are all, you know, dramatized and um, <laughs> they don't tell you just right. It turns out life on the phone. <laughs> is life not like West Wing is <laughs> uh, sadly. No, it is not. <laughs> Um, so I started out, I was still teaching when I, I started running. Um, I knew I'm not wealthy. Um, my, my background, you know, I don't come from independent wealth and my jobs, I was in them for the service, not for, uh, for the paycheck. I mean, that paid the bills, but never going to get rich doing what I was doing. So I knew I was going to have to start fundraising early and often. Um, if I, because I knew on a campaign, the money is what, gets you uh, in touch with people. It allows you to reach out to voters. So that's really why money is important on the campaign trail. But it is the heart of it when you run for Congress. Everyone wants to know how much money you've raised. So I started Mm. out making fundraising calls during my planning period as a teacher. I made my first website myself. Um, I was an army of one for quite a while. Um, So within a few months, by the end of the school year, I had brought on my first staff members and we officially launched. Um, so this was in the spring of 2019, more than like a year out from the primary election. Wow. It was a full-time job. So from the moment I stopped teaching and I was campaigning full-time, I would spend 30 hours a week on the phone making fundraising calls, dialing for dollars. Um, and so that was 30 hours on the phone. So there were breaks in there where we would, I would work with my campaign manager and we would approve social media posts. We'd go over endorsement questionnaires. Um, you know, we would talk about with the finance director, we'd have a consultant's call with all of our digital and mail and all the consulting firms um, that you have to bring in um, because your staff, especially on a small scale, is not going to be able to do that all. Right. Um, and so that was during the day. For the most part, we found people picked up the phones better during the day. Um, and then the evenings and weekends were spent traveling around the district to meet people. Luckily, uh, we were all within one county. Uh, it's a very compact congressional district, which for a lot of the 435 of them, they're not all like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but because we were a fairly urban district, I would go from one side of Houston to the other, and it would still take maybe an hour and a half to do <laughs> that. But at least we were <laughs> within one smallish geographic area. Um, so that it was the most hours I'd ever worked. Um, you know, I thought teaching was a lot of hours. The military obviously is a lot of hours, but this is a full-time job. You're living and breathing that campaign. Um, mm-hmm. And if you're an extrovert, it was a lot of fun for me. I actually really <laughs> loved meeting people and talking to folks. Um, so that would keep me going when I had to make those phone calls during the day. Um, wow. We did figure out, yeah, yeah, we figured out pretty early. Um, all those kind of normal things, going to the gym, family time, even grocery shopping, we had to put it on the calendar because otherwise we would just use every bit of time we had for the campaign. Wow. So Wow. We, well, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, please. 
so that was kind of the day to day. Um, and I kind of just want to give you a quick rundown of, of what the campaign looked like kind of from beginning to end there and some highlights of it. Um, we had a big presence on social media, which of course is necessary these days, but also because the person I was running against, Dan Crenshaw, um, was very heavily active on Twitter, especially. Um, and for a long time, I was the only person on the Democratic side running um, until very close to the filing deadline in December 2019. So we were really excited and proud as a campaign when we moved the needle with Politico's ratings, which of course, mm. once that moved in our favor, and it was only one notch, right? It didn't, it didn't jump too far, but that was enough. We got a lot of new donors coming in. Um, but of course, that also meant we had two other candidates jump in um, right before the filing deadline. And so now we were in a primary campaign Unfortunately, one of those candidates was a self-funded millionaire. And even though our grassroots campaign was very successful, we forced a runoff. We raised almost $400,000 in a year. Um, you know, we we came out of the, the primary in March of 2020. And with COVID becoming an issue and the start of the pandemic looming on the horizon, uh, and we didn't know what that was going to look like. So we opted to withdraw from the runoff instead of spending time and money fighting another Democrat, knowing mm. that our strength was going to be in our field program, mm -hmm. knocking on doors and, oh. and talking to voters individually. Um, but we didn't know what that was going to look like. So our campaign ended in March of 2020. Um and we withdrew from the runoff, so we thought that was a very successful end. Um, not all successful campaigns end an election, um, but we thought that was a big win. Oh, yeah. Kind of that, what an that grassroots politics. $400,000. And, and I, I mean, I, I, I feel very, uh, I don't know, it just pulls on your, your heart a little that you know, I pulled out of the runoff because I knew the way that I was going to have, the only way I knew how to do it was to knock on doors and I couldn't risk any of my constituents getting sick. I just, I, I think that shows the kind of people that are really all about their constituents. But I have to say, I mean, that does sound incredibly successful. I don't know if you're at liberty to share this yet, but, you know, is there anything next? I mean, I'm personally huge believer in local government and I live in DC and this is one thing that always makes me really sad is that I don't have a state council or city council like would you ever think about running in a local race or are your eyes set on the next congressional or can you not even tell us yet it's it's in the box well I, I haven't ruled anything out in the future but right now um and in the in the near future the foreseeable future um I I don't anticipate running again soon I think it just like this time, it would have to be the right race for the mm. right reason um, and making sure that my family is in the right place for it. Um, and I think mm. it's it's a big impact on on your life. Uh, I And when the campaign ended, especially with, with the pandemic, it was going from 100 miles an hour to zero mm. and hitting that reset button. Uh, while it was a welcome relief, I'm not sure I could step back into that again, mm. um, knowing what that looked like. Um, it takes a lot out of you. Uh, but it definitely, it's, it's, you know, an experience that I think if I had known what it was going to look like, I might've been more hesitant to jump in, but I think maybe again, touching back on that, not running for Congress the first time out, um, <laughs> would maybe make that a little Just bit went easier. In. Just went right yes. in. <laughs> um, well, I think that it's still, you know, as someone that has considered someday running, like, it's really good to hear um, some of the truths behind it. And, you know, we've heard that pretty consistently from people is that although there is a lot of well-deserved sometimes angst against our politicians and there's lots of 
things going on that, you know, not underestimating the, how much work it really is to do a campaign. I mean, just to constantly be on. Um, thank you for sharing all of that with us. Uh, to kind of switch gears as I come to my to my last two questions, which I, I do think are interesting to touch on with you as someone that, um, again, went to involvement at the highest level, ran for Congress. What's something that you would recommend um, for people that want to be involved in policy and government spaces? Um, obviously, in particular, we are geared towards women, but also for y- any young men that might be listening. Um, uh, you know, what's something you would suggest for people that want to get involved in policy and government, but don't know how and maybe aren't ready to run for Congress? <laughs> Right. I think the first thing is just to get started. And there are so many ways to dip your toe in without jumping all the way into the pool like I did. Um, You can volunteer for campaigns. I highly recommend finding someone, whether it's a local candidate or a federal candidate, uh, whoever's going to represent you. Number one, it's a good way to get to know them. But also block walking, phone banking. um, Mm. Those are easy things that they always need volunteers for. Um, So I do like to emphasize phone banking because I know we have folks with disabilities um, or who don't want to go out or have medical conditions where that block walking is maybe not in their wheelhouse. Um, but phone banking is something you can do from home these days. Um, you can do it, you know, with a, a Zoom kind of party in the background, um, you know, so f- people are, you still get that camaraderie. Um, so there are ways that are accessible for everyone to volunteer. Um, and th- so those are easy ways to see from the inside what that looks like. Obviously, you're not necessarily going to see all of the hours the candidate is spending fundraising behind the scenes. Um, but you can see what that the rest of that campaign looks like. The things that are, we call it re- retail politics that you're more likely to see on a TV show where folks mm. are out shaking hands and kissing babies. Mm. Um, so mm. it's nice to see that. And the other thing is to start small, right? So again, there's no need to run for Congress as that first race. There are things locally that you could be interested in, but those make huge impacts on our lives. So Mm -hmm. whether that's school board, city council, um, even a utility district, right? So depending on where you are, different things are elected. But those are going to be smaller campaigns. Um, The biggest difference between a congressional race and a local race is going to be the size of the campaign. The more voters you have to reach, which Mm -hmm. for congressional races, somewhere in the 700, 800,000 constituents, um, you're not going to reach them all. You never will. But the more, you know, the bigger the the pool that you're trying to reach out to, the more money you have to raise to do that. So if you're running for school board or city council in a smaller city, um, so again, Houston, where I live, is not maybe a first time race again because we're representing four million people in our city. But you know, smaller campaigns there, you can do that without putting the rest of your life on hold. You can do that as a second job. You can work your office job in the day, or um, you know, be a a a stay-at-home mom and Mm -hmm. do this while your kid's taking a nap. Um, So there are ways to do this um, where you cannot spend your whole life for a campaign. Um, And so really there's lots of issues, right, in everyday life, whether that's healthcare at the national level, property taxes at the local level, you know, lots going on Mm. with school boards these days that moms are interested in. Um, And so we need people paying attention to all of it, but as an individual, you can focus your attention on what's interesting and relevant to you. And so that's going to impact how you get involved and if you decide to run what you run for. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And 
I, I, it's good advice for me too, even because, you know, living in Washington, sometimes I look at this giant span of things and craziness. And I'm like, oh, can I do anything? But then, you know, when you kind of focus your energy on something that interests you and devote the time you can to it, um, you can make a difference. Definitely. Okay. Well, my last question, which I always ask, and um, this is like my anchor question. And, at, you know, as a uh, a woman that ran against uh, Representative Crenshaw, who was a, a man, <laughs> Uh, you know, what's your take on why we're still seeing, so we've got 153 out of the 535 members of Congress right now are women. What's your take on why we're so far from parity there? And is there anything we can do to get closer? Yeah, so there are two issues that come to the forefront for me. The first one is the biggest obstacle, I'd say, is that as women, we are still more likely to be the ones responsible for childcare or taking care of our aging parents. So anyone who's a dependent. Um, and when I ran, my kid was eight years old and I was a single mom. I still am. And I absolutely needed help in the evenings. Luckily, in 2018, the FEC ruled that federal candidates could use our campaign funds for child care. So mm -hmm. we were actually the first federal campaign to have a nanny on staff. Mm -hmm. I only had four full-time staffers and my nanny was one of them. So a That's lot of great. states... Yeah. A lot of states also let candidates use that money for uh, for child care, but not all of them do and not all of them explicitly say that. Um, so and then, of course, that's another staff member you're paying, even if it's part time to cover that expense. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the first reason I think is is we aren't going to run if we're worried about, again, taking care of our family. It's harder to, to do anything if you're not if you don't think your family is safe and secure at home. Mm -hmm. The second thing is, and there's a statistic that uh, women are less likely to apply for jobs in general, right? If we're not 100% qualified for them, <laughs> whereas men yes, are more likely, yes, to apply even when they only meet a couple of the, the check marks. Yes. Um, there was another statistic on the campaign um, trail that I heard that the average woman candidate has to be asked by someone else seven times before they run, whereas men don't even wait to be asked. So between That'll raising do. kids, That'll yeah. do it. That'll so between do it. raising our kids, you know, taking care of our families, waiting to be asked to run, the average age when women run for office is older, right? Mm -hmm. So we don't have women running locally that have the experience, the desire to run for those bigger offices. So in the House and then also the Senate, I really don't recommend that as a first campaign because that's a statewide. Um, but that building the bench, right, um, for future campaigns, I know on the Democratic side, we talk about that a lot. We want younger folks. We want more women. We want more diverse people running. So we have folks with that experience at the local level to go to D.C. and represent our communities. Yeah. So bottom line, what I say is that as a woman, you are inherently qualified to run for office because you have been running your home you've been working, you've been a member of your community. So you see what these policies look like when they actually hit the ground running, right? So when the rubber hits the road, you're there to see it. If you can see the results, you can work backwards and you can help shape the policy so it is a better fit for the people in the community. So if there's a public office where you think you could do some good, don't wait to be asked. Do your homework, don't do it alone but step up and be of service. Wow. That was really, 
I I literally some tears sprung to my eyes there. You said you are a woman, you are qualified. You know, I mean, I think we don't get that sort of um, reinforcement a lot, which you also mentioned when you said seven people usually have to say you can do this, you would fit before we say, okay, maybe you're right, I'll give it a go. Yeah, um, and if I have to say it six more times then for your listeners, then I will do it. But everyone is inherently qualified to run for office. So assuming age restrictions and things are bad, but <laughs> right, as a human, right. you, yeah. your lived experience makes you qualified. Well, thank you so much. I do want to open the floor up here. If there's anything else you want to add, um, you know, please feel free to, but I, I've just been really impressed with this conversation and, and I'm really excited to share it with people. I think you asked some great questions. I don't have anything else at this time, but uh, if folks want to reach out to me, um, if they, they can reach out through you, Grace, and I'd be more than happy to answer individual questions. Um, I do hope one day to write a memoir about my experience. So the more people I tell, the more likely it is to happen. Um, and so I, I appreciate your time today and the work you are doing uh, to encourage more women to, to run for office. I'll be first in line for the book. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. And um we will we will talk.